All right, we've got part two today of last week's sermon. So you may not have been here last week or you might have slept since last week and you might have forgotten what we talked about. So let me recap just a little bit what we talked about last week. A lawyer came to Jesus and he asked him a question. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that is the question to ask. And we got the answer last week. And the summary of the law See, Jesus asked this lawyer, he said, well, you know, if anybody ought to know, you ought to know. You're a lawyer in Israel. What, what do you say the law says? And he said, to love God with everything that's in you and love your neighbor as yourself. And that is the summary of the law. Now, Jesus was intending to point out to this guy that you cannot keep the law. But if you could keep the law, okay, that's one way to heaven. But it's not a way that is possible for us. And so he said, you have to love God with everything that is in you, every instant. And we talked about that last week. This week, we're going to talk about the other part of that, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, God is perfectly lovely. God is perfectly lovable. There's nothing in God that would make you say, well... You know, I love him except for this. Uh, One time I heard, uh, I think it was Oprah, say, the thing I love about God is, and then she said something about how he's forgiving. Well, the thing I love about God is everything, because everything about God is lovely and lovable. And because of that, he deserves our perfect love. Now, we still don't love God perfectly because we are selfish, we're sinful, uh, we're prone to self-idolatry. But there's nothing about God that is hard to love. Now, the neighbor is harder to love than God is. And we're going to talk about that today. But before we do, let's pray for God to give us understanding. Lord, I pray that you would teach us today. Lord, that you would teach us what you've taught me. And Father, as your spirit takes the message, I pray that you would implant it in us to make us uh, understand your grace more, to be more amazed by your grace to understand our sinfulness more and your holiness more. Father, we want to see more of you today as we look in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to read the passage, which is Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought, to, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. 
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So the first thing that this guy wanted to do because he desired to justify himself was find out exactly who is it that I'm to love? Who am I to love? Well, last week we learned that it was God that you're supposed to love. And you're supposed to love him completely, fully, with every part of your being at all times. Uh, We found out last week, I hope, that that is impossible, that we have failed to do that. But we should do that. But who else we should love is our neighbor. And we talked about last week how this guy doesn't even worry about the love God with all your faculties all the time part. He thinks he's done that. But he does want to make sure he's good on this neighbor thing. So he says, well, who exactly is it I'm supposed to love? Now, this story shows us that the people we're supposed to love is everybody. You may say, well, okay, that's kind of implicit in the story, but are we really supposed to love everybody? Well, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So, we're supposed to love our wife. Uh, Then Titus 2.4 says, Train the young women to love their husbands and children. All right, so we're supposed to love our spouses and children. Again, that's kind of easy. Uh, I hope. (laughs) I hope it's easy for you to love your spouse and children. Sometimes I understand even that can be challenging, but we chose those folks and we love them. Uh, We're commanded to love other Christians. In John 13, 34, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. All right, that's a little harder, right? Instead of just our spouse and our children, we're supposed to love other Christians. Now, some folks who claim to be Christians are just downright mean, you know? They brighten the room when they leave it. And we, we know those people. And uh, it's certainly questionable as to whether they really are believers. But the ones who claim to be believers sometimes can be just downright mean. Uh, if you take their word for it, though, you have to say, all right, this is a brother and a sister that I am commanded to love. But then it gets a lot harder than that. Because Jesus says in uh, Luke six twenty seven through 30, you'll recall, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, that's just crazy talk, isn't it? (laughs) Well, no, it is our Lord's command. Now, here is where we need to look at the Word, realize what it says, look at our experience of reality, and go, I can't do that. I mean, that's just honest to say, I can't do that. But I can't disobey my Lord either. So what do we have to do? Uh, It has to be the Holy Spirit of God loving people through me, because that's the only way it's going to happen. But God can do through us what we cannot possibly do in our own strength. Do you remember that Jesus told us that to follow him, we had to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him? Well, when you do that, here's what happens. In 2 Corinthians 4, 11, it says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Remember that, deny yourself, take up your cross? All right, it says, those of us who do that 
are being put to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. When the life of Jesus is manifested in our mortal flesh, then and only then can we love God and others like we're supposed to. So who are we to love? We're to love everyone. Now, to tell you the truth, guys, a a homeless drug addict is far easier for me to love than a maniacally obsessed pro-abortion politician. I would rather be around that person, love that person, show that person love any day of the week than I would one of these politicians who are so committed to the culture of death. But for us to hate them is not righteous at all. Now I can hate what they stand for. I can hate what they do. I can't hate them because hating people is just above above my pay grade. I'm not supposed to do that ever. We lack the righteousness to judge perfectly. Now Psalm 4 Psalm 5, 4 and 5 says this, and uh, I, I hear often, often from people that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. Well, the only problem with that is the Bible says God hates the sinner. We're going to read it. Uh, Psalm 5, 4 and 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Now, God can do that. I cannot. Because God is able to judge righteously, and He will judge righteously. But we can't do that. I mean, if you took a group of skunks and you said, now tell me which of you is the nastiest, which of you stinks the worst, that's kind of like me trying to condemn another person. I'm a sinner, they're a sinner. It's like a group of skunks trying to find out the stinkiest one, okay? They aren't qualified, but God is qualified to know who uh, deserves his love, who deserves his hate. There's one person that deserves his love, and that's Jesus Christ. And if I am to be loved, I have to be in Jesus. So it's our job to love people and tell them how to be reconciled to God. I know that's hard, and I know, as a matter of fact, it's impossible for me. When I see certain politicians get on the, on the TV and uh, flaunt their hypocrisy and flaunt their love for the culture of death, oh, I get very unpleasant, unkind, murderous feelings for them. <laughs> and I have to pray and I have to repent and I have to say, there would be me if it, not, if it weren't for the grace of God. And if you actually believe that, then you can have compassion on these folks. Uh, so we were, we're looking at the story of the Good Samaritan, but it's not a story about the Good Samaritan passing three different guys and one of those guys being worthy of his love. It's not about that. So the question the guy asked is, who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? Well, Jesus didn't really answer that question. He turned the question around to what it should have been and instead he talks about who it is that gives love, not which person was worthy of love. You know, I struggled to teach my kids when they were growing up to answer the question that was asked. I told them, look, on a, on a test, you're going to have a question and it's going to say a lot of stuff that doesn't matter. You look and you see what question was asked and then you see what information is given and you answer the question that was asked. Well, Jesus failed to do that. But that's okay, because he had a better question in mind. He had the question the guy should have asked. Uh, 
So he doesn't focus on what kind of person is deserving of love. Instead, Jesus answers the question, what sort of person is loving and merciful? Because that is what the the guy should have asked him. So when we come across someone, we don't need to determine whether they are worthy of our love. Instead, we need to commit to love everybody we come across. This religious guy knew what to do, but he didn't do it because he lacked love and compassion. So knowledge without love leaves, leads to a cold and dead religion that is off-putting, that is extremely unattractive to the world, as it should be. It should be extremely unattractive to us, too. Guys, if we get legalism and law without love, oh, mercy, we have missed the whole thing. We are like these Pharisees that Jesus reprimanded. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 talks about what happens if you don't have love. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Guys, it's way easier to learn stuff than it is to love people. And I think sometimes what we do is we get in here and we're comfortable learning stuff in here. But then when we go out there and we have to love people, that's a lot harder. So we say, hey, how about let's go back into the church building where we can talk about loving people because that's not hard. Going out and actually loving people is really hard. It's way easier to learn about witnessing than it is to witness. It's easier to study discipleship than it is to make disciples. We can't take the easy road, though, when that leads us to disobedience. Guys, dealing with people is messy and it's costly And if you want to complain about it, tell Jesus. (laughs) Personally, um, when I complain about people to Jesus, here's how it goes. I say, Lord, did you see what happened there? Did you see how mean and ungrateful that person was? And then I start thinking about how I act toward the Lord. And I start thinking about how after all the Lord has given me and done for me and forgiven me of, I still rebel at times. And I start going, man, that's... That guy did me wrong, but I do you wronger all the time. And what do you do? You forgive me. You give me grace. And then after I complain a little while, I realize, oh, it's me. It's me. It's me, oh, Lord, standing in the need of prayer, not being hurt about what somebody else did to me. Now, I got to admit, that's not my first reaction because I'm not, I'm not perfect. If somebody's mean to me, I go lick my wounds. And then I tell God about it, and he straightens me out and says, no, you're the one that really needs to be. Um, and, you know, you need to be praying for you, not this other person. So dealing with people is messy and costly for sure, but God does it all the time for you. He was perfect, and yet he was rejected and crucified. I'm nowhere near perfect, and sometimes people are kind of mean or ungrateful to me. Well, that hardly compares, does it? <laughs> Jesus took abuse and murder, and I take occasionally an unkind word, and I want to complain about it. So let's look at some of the details of this parable. 
In verse 30 of Luke 10, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now this was a well-known and infamous road. It was not safe to travel this road alone. Uh, it, it went down about 3,300 feet in elevation in 17 miles. And so this road wasn't safe, even if there weren't robbers on it. It wasn't really safe because you could fall off into a, uh, you know, into a pit or into a, fall off the mountain as you're going down and, and injure yourself or kill yourself and hurt your animal. But there were robbers as well because there were places for them to stay and hide. And so they got this guy, and they didn't just steal him his stuff. They beat him half to death, and they even took his clothes. Now Jesus is telling a parable, and a parable is a story made up to illustrate a point, okay? Uh, I, I read in commentaries this past week about why this priest uh, avoided the guy, what he was thinking, what possible excuses he might have had. Well, he wasn't thinking anything because he wasn't really a person because this is a story that Jesus made up <laughs> to illustrate a point. So we don't need to get into those minor little thoughts about what this made-up guy was thinking. Instead, we need to see the main point that Jesus is trying to tell us. And the story begins with conflict. I mean, if we watch a cop show, we're not going to watch him eating donuts and drinking coffee and filling out paperwork, right? There's a crime that happens, and then we see how they solve that. So we were, uh, we're being told a story, and this bad thing happens. This guy gets robbed and beaten, and he's laying there half dead. Well, good news, because in verse 31, we have hope because a priest comes along. Now, surely, if anybody's going to help this guy, it'll be a priest, right? After all, priests knew the scriptures. And he knew that the Bible commanded in Leviticus 19, 33, and 34, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. So he says, hey, even a stranger... You're to love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The priest knew this. So he knew he was supposed to love his neighbor as himself. So he comes upon this guy, and surely he's going to take care of him, right? Well, no, he didn't. He avoided him. He went to the other side of the street. And if Jesus was telling this parable in a modern-day context, he would probably say, here comes the preacher, right? Now, surely the preacher is going to stop and help this guy. I mean, if he won't do it, who will do it? Well, what does the priest do? In verse 31, it says, Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Guys, theological degrees without love are useless. Knowing Bible trivia without love is useless. You know, 1 Corinthians was telling us that all these things, prophecy and and uh, even heroic deeds in the faith without love are useless. Coming in here on Sunday morning to learn what the Bible says and not living it out there is useless. We had a lady at a, at a previous church where I served who we were establishing small groups in that church. And I was, I was the one in charge of that. And we had a meeting about what small groups would be like and what the point was and all this kind of stuff. And this lady understood the point. She said, okay, so you want me to have people in my home 
And you want these people to be not just church members, but you want us to invite other people in, right? And I said, right. She said, well, I don't want to do that because I don't know those people. Um, Those people might mess up my house. Uh, They might bring in their drama, their personal uh, drama and problems. And I just don't want to deal with all that mess. And I thought, well, you, you do understand what small group is for, but what an attitude, right? Of I don't want to deal with other people's stuff. See, that's the difference between coming in here, learning what we ought to do, and going out there and doing it. Going out there and doing it, we do have to mess with people's mess in their lives. We have to try to help actual people. And that is a lot more difficult than coming in here and talking about helping actual people. That attitude is the one that causes people to pass by on the other side of the street. I don't want to get my hands dirty. I don't want to mess with this situation. So here's the last hope for this guy. I mean, we see that he's been beaten. Uh, we see that he's, he's suffering. So we got another potentially good thing coming along. Because we have a, um, verse 32 says, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. And in a modern context, we might say that the next passerby is a deacon, okay? He's, uh, he's not the pastor, but he's a guy that works in the church and serves the church. But he, too, certainly should have known what he was supposed to do for, to care for this guy. Um, my, my favorite uh, bad deacon story was there was a guy in Senatobia who was checking his coolant and he opened the radiator of his car and he did it while it was still hot and this liquid sprayed all over him and burned him pretty badly. Well, he was out of, out of the public for a while because he was treating these burns and he had like burned places in his hair where his hair wasn't growing right and he was kind of embarrassed by this and so he went to a church there in Senatobia and a deacon came to him and said, son... It is disrespectful for you to be wearing that cap in here. You take that thing off. Well, he was wearing the cap to hide the burn scars. Well, needless to say, he left and he never to this day that I know of went back. That is the attitude that tells you to get on the other side of the street and pass them by. Now, the very last hope for this guy is the Samaritan that's coming along. Verse 33 through 35, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. That's the difference, folks. He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. You would put oil on on a wound to soften that tissue and prevent it from uh, failing to close up. So you would put oil on there. And wine obviously was a disinfectant. So he was caring for the man with all the resources that he had. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back. Now according to... The sources that I've read, these two denarii were enough to keep this guy at the inn for a couple of months. He didn't just pay for him a night. He paid for him an extended stay and then put his own credit on the line. He said, whatever else you pay, I'll take care of it when I come back. Uh, these innkeepers were not men of, uh, of great renown for their uh, honesty. Okay, So this guy was opening him up to be fleeced 
But he said, that's okay. You spend whatever you got to spend. I'll take care of it. Now, Samaritans and Jews hated one another and had for a long time. You see, when the, when the northern tribe was taken off into captivity, um, these, these folks that would take them captive would take people out of their own land and transport them to a different land so that they lost a lot of their will to rebel. And so they took the best and the brightest of the Jews and took them away. Now, if you take the best and the brightest, you know who you, you leave behind? <laughs> the, the not the brightest and the not the best. And then he took some Gentiles from a different place and relocated them into the land of Israel. And so the Israelites and the leftover Jews started intermarrying. And uh, they started you know, intertwining their, their gods and their religion. And they weren't supposed to marry outside the tribes, right? So... Then the southern kingdom got taken captive, and 70 years later they came back, led by Nehemiah. And so they're there, and they're rebuilding. And there comes these, uh, these Samaritans who came and said, hey, let us take part in what you're doing. Uh, Ezra 4, 1 through 6, will tell you that story. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord of God of Israel... They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of that guy, king of Assyria, who brought us here. All right, so he said, I, we, we who have been left here have continued to worship God. And you guys got taken away and now you're back and you're rebuilding the temple. And here we are, we want to help. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to him, You have nothing to do with us in building the house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. So first they came and said, Hey, let us build with you. They were turned down, rejected, said, We don't have anything to do with you. And so then they became their enemies and they started opposing the building and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So the Jews and the Samaritans had hated one another for centuries by the time of the New Testament. Um, when they were told they couldn't partake in the rebuilding of the temple, they said, all right, we'll build our own temple. And they went and built a temple on Mount Gerizim. And you know, if you remember Jesus talking to the woman at the well, she said, are we supposed to, are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim? And he said, well, I'm the Messiah. Here's, you're supposed to worship in truth and spirit. And so that's where that comes from. They had built another separate temple because they weren't welcome in Jerusalem. And 128 years before the birth of Jesus, a bunch of Jews had gone and destroyed their temple and killed a bunch of Samaritans. So I'm telling you, these folks hated each other. There was a deep and passionate racism embedded between the Samaritans and the Jews. Not Jesus, though, because you remember that woman at the well story. When he was talking about going to Jerusalem, he said, I must go through Samaria. Why must he go through Samaria? Jews would avoid Samaria, but not Jesus, because he had an appointment with the woman at the well, right? So Jesus did not share in this racism. So why in the world 
would this Samaritan stop to help this Jew? It is because in verse 33 we are told he had compassion. We must have compassion on the lost. And here's why, guys. They are blind and enslaved captives of the enemy. And we would be too were it not for grace. If you really, really believe that, you can and will have compassion on the lost, even the most brazen and obnoxious of them. <laughs> okay, Even the ones who stand for everything you hate and who hate everything you stand for. If you realize that they are blind captives of the enemy, you can even have compassion on them. Now let's see together the love that the Samaritan demonstrated. Guys, it was not an abstract feeling, okay? He didn't just pass by and go, yeah, love you, bro. <laughs> Keep going. That would have done nothing for this guy, and he would have gone on and died. It just wouldn't have done anything for him had he had a feeling and not had actions. He took action, though, and the Samaritan sacrificed his pride in order to help this guy. He sacrificially loved a man he was supposed to hate. And that took a sacrifice of his own pride. And then the Samaritan sacrificed his resources. In Luke 10.34 it says, He went to him and bound, him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So he had oil, he had wine. He didn't plan to use it on this beaten, Samaritan, beaten Jewish guy. He just had this in his own resources and he bound him. What did he bound, bind him with? I don't know. Maybe his own clothing that he had for the trip. But he takes his resources and he uses it on this guy. The Samaritan sacrificed his own comfort. In the end of the verse, we, say, we, we see that he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, for him to be on the animal, the other guy had to get off and leave the animal, right? So this guy sacrificed his resources. He sacrificed his comfort the Samaritan sacrificed his money. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So taking care of other people can, can lead to it being about money. And sometimes people go, All right, I'll do, I'll do some of these things, but no, not about money. But the Samaritan even sacrificed his money to care for this guy. All right, so looking at all this, and looking at the nature of someone who loves his neighbor, what do we do? Well, I hope last week you realized that you can't love God perfectly with all your faculties all the time. Likewise, this week, we need to realize that you can't love your neighbor as yourself all the time in every way. If you've ever taken care of your neighbor to the degree that you would take care of yourself, that was an awesome day or an awesome week, but we don't do that. You know, every time I'm hungry, you know what happens? I make sure I get fed. When I'm hot, I make sure I get cool. <laughs> when I need anything, I make sure I get that thing. We do not treat our neighbors that way. So realizing that we can't love God the way we're supposed to, we can't love our neighbor as we're supposed to, if you're trying to justify yourself, we've got to realize we cannot keep the law give up and come to Jesus for mercy, forgiveness, and salvation. The next thing we need to do as believers 
is help your neighbor with his or her greatest need, which is to be reconciled to God. Being beaten and stripped of your clothing and left half dead is bad. Dying and going to hell is worse. Their greatest need by far is to be reconciled to God. So the last thing is we as believers need to deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily and follow Jesus. So that his life may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now the reason that I put that the way I put it is I took these two wonderful verses Luke 9 23 and 2 Corinthians 4 11, and I said you know when we deny ourselves take up our cross and follow Jesus take up our cross daily and follow Jesus the result is that we've been put to death in the flesh and Jesus would be manifest in our mortal flesh in our lives and I said you know these two go together only after we put ourselves to death we die daily can and will Jesus be manifested in our mortal flesh? So guys, if you're not a believer, you got no prayer of doing that. If you are a believer who has the Holy Spirit indwelling him, then you can, through the grace of God, put to death that mortal flesh so that Jesus will live through you. Now, like I said, guys, I don't, it's not my instinct to do that. It's not my natural response to do that. When I hear someone, uh, you know, especially in these politically charged days, being flagrantly hypocritical or, um, you know, it seems like the reason they get up and the reason they draw breath during the day is to advance the cause of abortion. I, I, I don't love those people. Nothing in me loves those people. But... When I think, when I pray, when I ask God, when I say, Lord, if it weren't for your grace, I would be blind, I would be dead, and I would be a captive of the enemy. Then all of a sudden I can look at those people and say, what they need is to see and to be set free from their bondage. And the only way they're going to get that is through our sharing the gospel with them. And so, guys, I've been convicted a lot lately since the Love Your Enemy passage in Luke 6, especially, about how we cannot hate and reach our mission field. We have to love our mission field in order to reach them. They're not lovely. They're not easy to love. But, boy, neither was I when the Lord chose to put his love on me, right? So, as difficult as it is, we've got to love our enemies, Because they are our mission field. And if we don't love them, we can't reach them. So dealing with people is messy. You know what's really hard about church work? People. (laughs) You know what's hard about retail work? People, right? If you can sit in your office and study the Bible, all is well. Uh, If you can uh, fill prescriptions and send them in the mail, all is well. When you deal with people, that's when it gets messy. But guys, that's our calling, to deal with those who need to be reconciled to God. So let me encourage you guys, if, if you think, well, if I were to do small group, it would mean uh, a sacrifice of some of my comfort. It would mean a sacrifice of some of my money uh, as, I'm, as I'm preparing food and hosting for people. It would um, be inconvenient for me. 
and I would have people in there who would have drama and they would introduce drama into my life. Yeah, now you get what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. So let me encourage you to think about that. And uh, don't worry about COVID. It's going away, right? We're getting vaccines. We'll all be good. Maybe a few months, but we'll get there. At that point, be ready to jump into the messy world of helping people who need to be reconciled to God. Let's pray.